0: Well,
1: hey everyone. Hey, Christy. Welcome to the visual version of the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm so glad that you're chatting with me today. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Here, I
2: guess, right? Yes,
1: here <laughs> in our own realms. <laughs> yes. Um, well, for people listening and watching, um, I have started doing a Worth Your Time podcast on video. So we are, we are chatting um, on Facebook live today, and this will then go on to the stream. And I'm really excited to talk with you today, Christy, um, just about an organization that has been th- one that I've supported for a very long time um, and just about the work that you do. Um, so I guess let's kick it off. Tell us who you are, who you work for and what you do. Sure, so
2: my name is Christy Dandera betway I am the executive director for Rock Recovery, which is a nonprofit based in the Washington DC area that helps people overcome body image issues and eating disorders to live happy and free, healthy lives. And I've been working with the organization now for about seven years, which has been amazing. And I'm personally recovered from an eating disorder, which is what gives me the passion and drive to do this work. And it's been a joy to get to work with a lot of different people and help spread the message that complete freedom is possible. And we don't have to be at war with our bodies.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I, you know, I have a kind of a connection with Rock before I, I knew the founder Um, before you were there. And um, so I had known about rock recovery. And then I sort of got um, associated with you. And I've been following along with what you guys have been doing for all of these years. um, Because uh, I I also have recovered from an eating disorder, I had an eating disorder from really the ages of 13 to probably into my 20s, like mid to late 20s. Um, So it was a very long journey for me. So I'm always very passionate about making sure that people have the resources that they need. So I have a lot of questions for you, Christy, about the organization, what you guys do. And then I want to talk a little bit about eating disorders. But when we hear the word eating disorder, um, some people may not exactly know what that means. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us a definition of what an eating disorder is.
2: Yeah, and I'll actually even go a little bit broader to say the term disordered eating too. So we kind of flip back and forth between saying disordered eating or eating disorder because Any relationship with food that gets in the way of your physical, psychological, mental, emotional, spiritual health can be a problem, right? So Mm -hmm. it might be a small – so with disordered eating, it's kind of a spectrum. We think of healthy eating as a spectrum, and we don't mean healthy eating in the typical way people talk about healthy eating, but we mean more moderate, balanced, enjoyable eating, And so with an actual eating disorder, you know, those include lots of different things, but mostly people think about anorexia, bulimia, and now binge eating disorder is actually a newly um, added category for the DSM with mental health disorders. And that's actually the most common eating disorder, even though it's the least well understood, I'd say in a lot of ways, and kind of the most stigmatized. So basically an eating disorder is anything like a relationship with food, that has compensatory behavior to maintain a certain shape or weight, or any kind of using food for control or coping, in a, in a really un, unhelpful um, and maladaptive way. It's kind of how I'm, the layman's term description of an eating disorder. But really, again, this disordered eating description goes back to anything on a spectrum. So, you know, for for me, and I don't know your story exactly, Erica, but my disordered eating and my eating disorder actually started by going on a diet. So, you know, the diet and a lot of us go on diets in America and all over the place where that's the first example of, oh, I can't trust my body. I can't listen to my body. I have to listen to something external to my body to get a certain weight or number on the scale. And that is where a lot of us, I think, enter into no longer trusting or listening to our bodies and what they really need
1: hmm. Now, I would love to hear actually about your personal story, if you don't mind sharing. Um, what you know, how did it develop for you, and how did you, I guess, realize that you were dealing with an eating disorder, and then find your way out of it? Oh, quite a journey. I know, it's, a big, yeah. it's a big, it's a big question. It's a big question. But uh, you know, I think hearing other people's stories is really um, that is what really brings hope to people that are in the middle of the struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and for me, similar
2: to you, I started my battle with disordered eating early on. I mean, probably at age eight is when I started to kind of struggle with food. I moved from Pennsylvania to Texas against my will as an eight-year-old. I was very mad about moving. And food was the only thing I had to help me cope with my emotions. That was sort of how I soothed myself. But really at 13 is where my, my true disordered eating and eating disorder kind of began where I went on my first diet. So, you know, a lot of people... Bodies change, it can be really difficult to accept. And when I turned 13, that was the first time I really started to see changes in my body. I was also really serious about ballet and I realized, oh, the women who look this way and, you know, are super thin or tall or whatever, they're getting the parts that I want. They're getting the praise that I want. What can I do to make myself get that praise and to fit? Like, oh, I can go on a diet, I can change what I eat. It felt really normal to me to see my body as something I could change and control, not something that was kind of created the way it was meant to be. And that was sort of what I had to store. So it started with this diet and ballet that really made me not really accept my natural body type and shape and didn't really help me have a good relationship with food. So when I started going on diets at an early age, I had this really strange relationship where when I was young, I coped with food but then suddenly now I'm on a diet and I shouldn't eat those foods. So it was sort of this love-hate push-pull relationship from 13 to 22, really, of feeling like I shouldn't eat certain things, having these good food, bad food categories, restricting, 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 and then eventually going to the other side and binging and doing some kind of compensatory behavior like exercising or you know restricting again for days at a time. And I just was kind of on this roller coaster of disordered eating for a very, very long time. And, you know, I'll spare you guys the details of all the all the specifics of it. But basically, you know, it was being obsessed with the scale, getting on the scale first thing in the morning, and that number would dictate my day, it was going to be a good day, if it was below x, it was going to mm-hmm. be a bad day, you know, if above x. And then just not being present with family and friends at meals, kind of eating alone, or not wanting to eat around people wanting to, I kept every calorie counted on a on a spreadsheet, on a little to-do list. You know, if I just really struggled with being present with people at all because I was so in my head thinking about what I'd eaten or not eating the calories and, and all the rest. And it got especially bad in college, you know, first time leaving home, the change, the uncontrollable things, going out of state. I left Texas and went to school in North Carolina where I knew nobody. So I had no coping skills, no community, no real normalcy. And all I had was food. So I was back in that place again where food was my comfort but it was also my enemy. So it was kind of this like mm-hmm. frenemy situation.
1: Yeah. 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 And then, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to say just to, uh, just for people listening um, in terms of what it feels like to have an eating disorder. I, I could, so much of what you say really resonates with me. Just like starting at 13 and, you know, having a, a real dramatic shift Um, to being more negative when I entered college that also was something that I experienced but I I think for people that have never experienced it it is comparable to having um, an addiction it is comparable comparable to feeling like you are really um, just in the middle of something that you don't have control of that you cannot find your way out of I mean I remember so many times just like praying about this and just being like I I feel like I'm never going to be free from this Eating disorder, like it it is, it is constantly on my mind, and um, I cannot seem to um, find any freedom from it. And it felt impossible at the time. And so, uh, I don't know if you had a similar experience to that, um, but but I think that's you know the one reason that one of the reasons I want to share these stories is just because um, ultimately I did find freedom and you found freedom, and, and I want people to know that they can. Um, so, so what led you on the pathway to finding that freedom? I mean, I really
2: think for me, it was God's grace in a lot of ways, because I didn't realize I had an eating disorder, which might sound wild. I mean, the things that I did were clearly so disordered, but a lot of my friends had these strange food habits too, or they didn't like the way they looked or they all talked badly about themselves or they all skipped meals and did all these things. So even though I had extremely disordered patterns and behaviors and wasn't listening to my body, I didn't realize it was really a problem because a lot of my friends did it. It seemed really common. And because I think a lot of us in society think, Oh, you have to look a certain way to have an eating disorder. You have to be underweight. You have to be, mm-hmm. you know, really significantly sick and My weight shifted significantly, but I was never underweight. You know, I never – you couldn't look at me and tell that I was really sick. So I was actually surprised when I figured out that I had an eating disorder, and I – Actually, realized I had an eating disorder because I met a cute boy at a bar who asked me to go to church. And <laughs> I know, didn't say that coming, did you? <laughs> and so I was—I I just graduated college a couple months earlier. I was really depressed. I started having anxiety attacks. I was really struggling, and all I really did was, you know, go out on the weekends to bars and kind of go to work and hate my job during the week. And have weird things with food and kind of, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And so I met this guy, he asked me to go to church and I was like, yeah, sure. Like you're cute enough. This seems interesting enough. I could go wrong. So I went to church with him and at this church, there was a program being run called new ID and new ID is a six week series for anyone with an eating disorder. And the whole premise is that complete freedom is possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So the first
2: week I'm at this church, this lovely British woman, Kim Hemsley comes forward and she makes an announcement about this course saying, you know, I'm recovered from an eating disorder. I'm offering this six week series it's open to anyone, come find out if freedom is available, you know, come, come learn more. And I remember thinking, yeah, there's no way that any woman could actually be free from food and body image stuff. But I bet this course will help me lose more weight. So I'll definitely go and sign (laughs) up. So I always joke that God tricked me twice, uh, because once with the, you know, lovely man that is actually now a very dear friend, the guy who invited me to church has been a friend now for 15 years. And it's really cool to see the redemption there. But and I got tricked again, because I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to wield more control. This is how I'm going to kind of get control over my life and my body. Like this course will help me finally pull it together, because I'd kind of gone from restrictive to binging, and I didn't know what to do. And it really scared me. Mm -hmm. So I went to the first night of this course and the whole topic. So there's different teachings every week and testimonials of people who are recovered and then discussion group and prayer time and little plug, we're running this new ID course starting September 14th.
0: So it's virtual and available
2: to anyone nationally. So we can talk about that more later, but Uh just fun fact, put a pin in that. And the first week I was there, the whole talk is about what are eating disorders and what is freedom. And Kim, the, the teacher, was saying, you know, kind of going through the criteria, it's not listening to your body, it's restricting, it's binging, it's purging, it's whatever. And as she was kind of going through the list of all the things, I was like, wait, I checked that box, I checked that box, I checked that box, like all those things resonate with me. But I thought you had to like not eat anything to have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Again, look a certain way, be a certain weight. So that course was really what started everything for me and helped me understand that any relationship with food that's getting in the way of your health and well-being is a problem, even if it's not cookie cutter or something that might look like what you thought it looked like. So I started working with a great outpatient team called a psychologist, got a dietitian, and really started doing pretty intensive outpatient therapy on my own that really helped catapult me forward. Because once I realized I did have a problem, and kind of, you know, the scales fell off my eyes. And I realized, wow, this is actually, this is actually a problem. It's really been hurting my life for a long time. And I just didn't see it. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to fix it faster than anyone before me. ever had. (laughs) I'm going to do it so perfectly. It's going to be so great. So while that did not happen, I did kind of throw myself in. And once I realized this was a problem, I I was really motivated to like some flip switched in me and some switch flipped in me and I was just ready to to go all in.
1: Yeah. I I like your point about um, the cookie cutter because Mm -hmm. I, you know, similar experience where, you know, when my eating disorder started, I did get very, very thin and there were you know, people asking questions about me, but at some point it did, it swapped to, you know, binge eating and bulimia. And at that point I ended up, you know, really gaining a significant amount of weight and, um, which really only made me a normal size from what I had been, you know? Um, but, but at the, what I found to be the worst part of my eating disorder was the highest weight that I've ever been in my life. And that is when I went out to an outpatient program as well. And I was just when the my uh, therapist had suggested that to me, I was like, Oh, that's I'm going to look stupid in that program, because everyone's going to be like really skinny. And I'm going to be like the fat one. And, uh, you know, it ended up being that, that wasn't the case. There was all body sizes there. Um, people are dealing with the because the, the eating disorder is a spectrum, you know, and I once I got there, and I was talking with everybody, I started to realize like the thoughts in our heads were really all the same. It's it just manifests differently. And everybody's you know, behaviors and how they deal with it. And so, um, you know, that too, for me, going to one of those groups was the first step. And, um, you know, at first I said to myself, um, this is too expensive. I don't have time for this. I'm in college. I have a job. You know, how am I going to do this? And, and my therapist had said to me, well, like, this is your life. Like, this is, this is the rest of your life. Like, isn't it worth it? And so luckily, um, my parents' insurance ended up being able to cover this program that I was a part of, but not everybody has that kind of a thing. And so that is kind of where rock comes in, because you guys know how expensive it can be for people to get treatment. I mean, in an inpatient treatment for an eating disorder is just like obscene, like I like so much money. And so people probably feel very um, lost. They feel hopeless, like they could never afford something like that. So I guess, um, tell us a little bit about Rock and what you guys do and what you exist for. Sure. So Rock is
2: <laughs> excuse me, such a great organization. I mean, I'm clearly very biased, but I feel like we fill in these gaps that are just so prevalent for people who are trying to seek care and help. And it's hard enough. I mean, you've experienced this. It's hard enough to want to get better and to do the hard work of recovery, you know, feel the feelings and make the changes and give up control and all the things that come with that. But to not be able to access that care because you can't afford it just really breaks my heart. And I never went to an actual program. I did mostly individual therapy work outpatient and kind of cobbled together my own support with the new ID course and with individual treatment. But my parents put money into my account every week to cover my co-pays and to cover the things because I was working my first job out of college. Like I couldn't afford the things that I needed to pay. Right. And about a year and a half, two years into my recovery, when I was really finally feeling more free and getting my life back, i was i you know I suddenly realized what a weight I had carried for so long, and it just really devastated me to think, wow, there are people out there who are carrying this weight alone, and they might even want to get better, and they can't do it because they don't have parents that can put money into their account, or they don't have insurance that's going to cover the care that they need. And it just really, I mean, I just weep just thinking about it. It's really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking for me. So rock really is who stands in that gap for people. So we provide clinical services led by clinicians, so led by therapists, dietitians, trained, licensed people, and um, and master's level clinicians as well, who provide programs, most of which are group therapy programs to help people break isolation and kind of have that shoulder to shoulder connection with people who understand what they're going through. And it's all sliding scale. So cost is never a barrier for anybody to get the help that they need, because we believe that good treatment gets people well. And the thing that I found in my own recovery is, there's really three things that are critical in recovery. One is experts. So access to people, you know, programs you need, therapists, clinicians, the, the treatment that you need is critical. The second for me was really faith. So being able to surrender to something outside of myself and and lean on something because I'm not perfect and I needed grace to get through the really hard times. And then the third being community, people who get it. You know, we, we talk a lot about Rock, about the gift of I get it because there's something really beautiful about being across the table from somebody or nabbing across a computer screen from somebody and then being like, Oh my gosh, me too. Or I totally get that. And so rock kind of provides all three of those things. We're a faith-based organization and we serve all people regardless of faith or beliefs or background, but we do offer some great spiritual care and support for people who do want to integrate it into recovery because it's hard to find. And if, that's part of who you are and what you believe, you know, you want to come as a whole person into recovery. So we do these great clinical programs that are currently just available in the DC metro area and soon to be California. We're launching our first program in California. It's all exciting. And we're hoping to grow to more states as we, as we go through, because with state licensure, you know, we're limited to where our clinicians are licensed to where you can see patients. It's like a whole thing. And then we do have though, a lot of community support services that people like myself run who aren't clinicians, but are trained and are screened and are monitored by clinicians, and we run some great online support programs that are accessible across the nation, one of which being New ID, which we normally do it in person at churches or private practices. But with COVID, we did our first one online and it was amazing. And we're like, wow, why didn't we think of this sooner? We can reach people everywhere with this course. Yeah. People from Canada came. People, you know, someone from Turkey wants to come. But the time zone, they'd be at like 2 a.m. So they can't quite make it this time. But you know, it's been really cool. So, yeah.
1: So Um, we just help break
2: Yeah. So in a nutshell, Rock really helps break isolation, break barriers like stigma and cost. And then we break bread. We do meal support programs to help people break bread with the people
1: that they love. Um, I want to ask about the the faith-based portion of it. I mean, one of my, and let me just, I'll just pretend that I'm a client right now, (laughs) Um, or back (laughs) in the day, back in the day when, uh, when I thought like this, you know, one of my biggest struggles was being a Christian and feeling like that there was something like that I was sinful for having an eating disorder. Like I I kept mm-hmm. going back to this, like, well, if I was a, if I was a stronger Christian, if, if I could choose to do the right thing, um, I wouldn't have this problem. And so it was really hard for me to sort of balance being a Christian and having this like affliction. Uh, so I guess how do you speak to people that maybe are dealing with that? Cause I assume you have a lot of Christians coming to you since you're faith-based um, and, you know, sort of getting them to recognize that this is a mental illness and it's not their fault. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, and that's
2: why, again, coming as a whole person into treatment is so, so critical. And we've had clients who are strong believers, lovely women of faith, and we serve all people, all genders, so men of faith too. And, um, but we've had women come to us, I'm thinking of a few people in particular who, When we ask them, well, you know, what does God say to you when you pray about this? Or what do you think God is leading you toward or what's going on? And they're like, oh, I've never prayed about my eating disorder because I need to fix it before God will accept me. Like, I need to fix it before I can actually come to God and receive this. And we're like... No, that is the beauty of grace, right? Like we get to show up as we are and come as we are right now. We don't have to get our acts together. We don't have to do anything. So we really just try to encourage our clients, like start where you are. That's okay. You don't have to clean up your act before you come to God. That is not at all what Jesus tells us in the gospels or any of the stories, right? Like we show up as we are, God gives us grace and then we change. That's kind of how we've seen it happen and how it happened for me. Um, but that but that shame and that pain is very real. And we've also seen really well intended clergy and people in positions of power in the church, you know, when our clients have gone to them say, Oh, this is just your sin issue. We'll just pray about this and you need to just repent. And that is so damaging and so painful and makes me so angry, but mostly just makes me really sad that people are being told it's them because we talk a lot about kind of normalizing this. Like, well, if you had cancer, wouldn't you take time off of work to get better? Wouldn't you tell friends, you know, people would bring you meals. You do all these things. Like why can't we do that for mental health or mental illness? Like this is, mm-hmm. there should be no shame in this. It's biological, right? Like there's so much yeah. of this biopsychosocial illness that's happening for people. So we just try to help people understand they're not alone and that there's no shame in this and God loves them as they are. And it's not their fault. And all they can do now is take responsibility and yeah there might be some repentance of things that we've done and ways we want to change and but not not the not the shameful thing of it's our fault or anything like that you know and that's what's so damaging and we talk a lot too about how it's not a sin to have an eating disorder even if there's sinful behavior because you know not caring for your body and not stewarding your body is of course falling short of what god calls us to do but we wouldn't say it's a sin to have cancer again, right? So we try to kind right. of pull, pull these threads and pull things apart where, to, to really help to kind of combat the shame and the lies that the enemy wants us to believe. Cause that's what, you know, keeps us in darkness and keeps us sick is that shame and that fear.
1: Yeah, it's so similar to I mean, last year, I did a lot of work and interviews on um, people with opioid addiction. And Mm. so much of what you're saying is what people are saying in that community too. like, when people are struggling with that, like, why aren't we helping them? Why aren't we bringing them meals? Why aren't we having the same kind of um, compassion that we have for someone that um, is dealing with cancer or something like that? Because it is just a different kind of healthcare issue. But it is an issue that people really would never choose to be have in their lives. Nobody choose addiction. Nobody chooses an eating disorder. And so I think there definitely are mis- misconceptions in that way. Um, I had this question that was on the tip of my tongue and now I'm forgetting it, but I'm going to find it again. Um, you know, one thought I had though, was that, um, just maybe for anyone listening, that's dealing with this or is dealing with someone in their life that has an eating disorder. Um, one of my biggest struggles and probably still struggle with this to this day is just, um, being patient with yourself, like you said, you tried to get over it so quickly. Um, And I know for me, um, back when I was struggling, it would always be like, okay, well, tomorrow, I'm going to be perfect. You know, tomorrow, I'm going to eat only this many calories, or I'm not going to binge or I'm not going to do the behavior. Um, But nothing is going to be solved tomorrow. And I think that is is the hard thing to think about when it comes to eating disorders, because with a drug, for example, you can say, well, I'm not going to do that drug, or I'm going to stop drinking, and I'm never going to take another drink, you can say that. um, And it's possible. But with eating, like you have to eat, you have to have food, like you can't run away from the substance, because you need the substance. And so how do you talk with people about looking at the long term of this and realizing that like, when you mess up, that doesn't mean you're starting back at the beginning. It just means maybe you went three steps forward and you want one step back, but you're still moving forward.
2: I mean, one of the things I always say, which is so annoying to hear when you're on the other side of things, going through recovery is recovery is a bunch of baby steps kind of strung together, right? It's not oftentimes like people's lives are often small, faithful steps, not big sweeping moments or grand gestures. Right. And so recovery is really similar to that, especially with food recovery. I mean, we wouldn't say,
0: and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
2: People are addicted to food. We, we talk about maybe um, an eating disorder being a process addiction, not a substance addiction in the same way. Because you're right, you can't just stop eating. That's kind of a right. problem for some people, mm-hmm. right? And it's and it makes it really tricky because you have to deal with it for hours a day, you know? This isn't something that you can just kind of put in a box and put away. Or I'm not saying people do that with recovery of substance abuse, but this isn't, this isn't so cut and dry and people try to make it black and white. And often those who struggle with eating disorders have this black and white perfectionistic thinking. So it can be really tricky, but I think just having grace for the process, realizing, you know, the slow and steady pace of recovery and eventually time does give us that beautiful hindsight that you can look back and see, wow, that's better. I mean, I remember when I was going through recovery, working with my therapist, I still could tell you, I mean, the amount of calories I ate for the last like three weeks without even looking at my little notebook, right? Like I just knew. And she said, we are going to get you to stop counting calories. And I was like, you are insane. That is impossible. I've been doing this for the last 12 years. I've never not known the amount of calories I go into my mouth for a day. I can't even look at a food and not know how many calories are in it. Like this is like my superpower. I could tell you anything. It's amazing. I'm really good at doing math in my head now because of this. It's the only reducing <laughs> factor of counting calories for so long. But I remember, you know, I worked with her on this, like, ruthlessly for I don't know if it was a couple months or how long it was. But I remember one day kind of sitting and starting to count calories and being like, hold up. When did I know how many calories I ate last? And I hadn't counted calories in days. And I was just like, I think I just cried with joy. I was like, oh, my gosh, it is possible. Like, I never thought, never thought that would change. I never thought that would get out of my head. I felt so tied to it and so stuck to it. And it happened, you know, and it was just small, faithful, annoying, frustrating, like, unglorious steps along the way. And that's just what recovery is. And that's what's cool about being fully recovered. And why we would say that complete freedom is really possible is because right, like we have to eat every day. And so we believe that we can have full life and freedom, because of what Jesus did for us. And because of all the grace that we get to receive, but there's real freedom that's possible for us. And it's it's amazing to eat a meal now with friends to go out on my honeymoon with my husband, we went to Italy and I remember just sitting at these meals and thinking I would be in tears if this had happened to me, you know, 10 years ago. And it's just so great to have that kind of hard earned freedom, but it's also a grace in a weird way, you know, it's all these different pieces coming together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally would echo that. I mean, I, um, you know in the in the end portion of my eating disorder, like I was really it was a lot of severe binging, and I look back- you know at one point you know years ago, I look back and I said, "I don't even know when I did that, like I don't know when I binged the last time, and I have no desire to do it at all, like zero, like I can't even understand that mindset that I used to have i mean there would be times when. Um, I would, you know, go on a binge or whatever at like eight o'clock in the morning. Like, I mean, to me that is unthinkable now. Those kinds of things, but it was—I was running to it as this escape, and um, it was just like using it as a drug. Looking back, and that's hard to comprehend if that's not something that you've ever done. But it is how I used it, and and to this day now, I just think like I can't even—I cannot even imagine doing that. Like I'm so far from that, but yet at that time I felt. That I would never like I remember I used to tell myself I, I you know uh, drive like because I would go to drive throughs you know what I would get a bunch of food and eat it in my car while I was driving and I would say to myself like you're gonna like end up killing yourself like while you're driving trying to eat this food because you're not paying attention like it, it got that severe in my mind where I was like this is gonna kill you in some like off weird way like this And and I remember having that thought and that's just really scary, even even recalling it right now. Um, But yeah, it was a slow process. and, And and I think what I'd like to emphasize is just that every little step does count. Like even if you end up going backwards and feeling like you've gone backwards, you're still moving forward. And I think that would go for for any kind of addiction. I I mean, whatever it is that you're struggling with, every step forward is building some kind of strength. And so it is a long game. I would say like from the time that I started really getting help when I was about 20 to the time where I really felt like, okay, like this is not something I'm struggling with anymore. It was probably, I mean, five or six years. And that's, that's a hard thought. Like if you're not in that place yet, But I just think like thinking of the long game and thinking, where do I want to be in five years? And like, am I going to trust what these other people are saying that have been there? Like trust that it's possible. Um, And so I know that's like a lot of what you guys are saying at Rock Recovery. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because here I am now the mother of a little girl and thinking about her, she's only two now. So we're not dealing with anything yet. But, you know, growing up, of course, my mom was a huge influence in my life. And, um, you know, I look back and she, I have an awesome mom, but there were definitely some things that she said and did that I feel like influenced me in a negative way, not on purpose. And I think that that all moms can do that. And I think culture um, plays into this. And, and I'm scared of culture more than I'm scared of myself because I, I see what I'm seeing on TV I see, um, you know, what you see in the magazines, you know, all that stuff. How do we protect our daughters? What do you say to moms? Oh my I need advice.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm so scared I because I do not want her to go through that. I do I not want her to go through
2: that. I know. I know. And I think the fact that you don't want her to go through that is so much of the starting battle. You know, that's such a big game changer right there is just the awareness, you know, knowing that something's off, something's disordered, something's kind of gone awry in our culture. And we get to change that for our children. You know, I think our girls and our boys, right? Like it's happening for all, all kids, unfortunately, the pressure and all the rest, but especially, I mean, as a mom, it, it does unfortunately happen with your modeling, right? Like kids watch what you do, watch what you say, watch how you are. And that is kind of what they're soaking in. So I think it's really tough to put the pressure on yourself as a mom. I feel like beyond body image for general people and general women, I think moms have so much shame thrown at them for their bodies, for how they parent, for whatever the things, right? Like, I just think it seems like a really tough gig. So well done on doing it. Um, But I think just remembering, like, you don't have to be perfect, but you do get to be, like, it's kind of this mirror for you of like what your kids start to pick up on you. Like that's kind of Mm -hmm. what's going on for you. So you want to be as healthy as you can so you can help your kids be as healthy as they can with their self-image, with their self-esteem, with their bodies, with kind of all of it. So really working on yourself first, which is, I know you've done a lot of work on. So I think that's just great advice is to do that. And then just to help our kids remember their identity is not their appearance, not their achievements, you know, their worth comes from something so much more than than these external things and these fleeting things and there's this great book called Shaped with Love. I think her name's Dr. Osborne. I'm blanking on the author's name that talks about how to talk to kids about their bodies. And one of the, like the simple tips she gives is like, take their arm and be like, God made your arm. Like, God loves you. God loves this arm. I love this arm. It helps you hug, it helps you throw balls, it helps you like, you know, pick up your food. It helps you do whatever. Like your arm is really important. And it kind of reminding and validating and affirming these different pieces of our bodies and ourselves because objectification is what happens when you start to look at pieces of a person not the whole self but kind of the opposite to that is affirming each body part affirming the parts of ourselves and saying like this is created this is good and this is why you have it versus it's ornamental or it has to look a certain way or be a certain way really focusing on the deeper piece too and just who people are versus how they look. I think we all need to I need to do a better job of that. We all need to do a better job, I think, of really focusing on what's lasting and what really matters and not just these fleeting
1: yeah. things. Yeah. Now, um, have you noticed um did you get any uptick in interest or people um contacting you during COVID? Because I know for myself, <laughs> yeah. I really sort of felt like a flare up a little bit. Like I don't, you know, I'm not worried about it, but I definitely felt a little a few things like, you know, like overeating and like overexercising and like trying to control something um, that I couldn't control. T- tell me about that situation with you guys. Yes,
2: we were very popular come mid-March, I will say. And I mean, it makes so much sense. So with COVID comes, I think all of, especially at first, I mean, it was so scary. We all fell out of control. All of our norms are taken away. We didn't have our support systems, right? We have a lot of clients at Rock Recovery who or eating lunch with their coworkers and suddenly they're working from home and they're like, well, who's going to be my account about like, who's going to help me eat my lunch or I can't come to group therapy. What am I going to do? And it's like Thanks. the food is
1: in the refrigerator. Like the kitchen right there. is there all day right next to me. Like all yeah. day.
2: And I mean, we have clients that like cry going to the grocery store on a normal day, let alone like behind a mask and like, you know, lifestyle the place. Like it's, and it's, it's stressful. It's really hard to make these decisions. And so for people who haven't struggled with food or body image, that might sound so silly, but I mean, if you have, it's it's like a battlefield just to go to the grocery store on a normal day. So all these things, the control being taken away, the changes, the stress, the pressure, the isolation, all of that definitely has has caused a huge increase in the need that we're seeing. And just for mental health in general, and I think mental health care in general is really at an all-time high for people needing more care right now. Um, I think the first month of co- when COVID hit, we had nine times as many inquiries. We were so busy. Oh, it was wow. not a great coping skill for me, but it was great to be busy. So I couldn't panic. I was like, great. I will just like, help all these people and not deal with my own feelings. What a healthy way to handle life. But eventually, you know, I
1: got through it. Were they um, like first timers or were they people that had, were feeling like they were relapsing or something? <sighs> so fascinating. such a good question. It was
2: both. So it was some people who were experiencing early recovery, but felt themselves slipping and they were like, hold up, I don't wanna go back down there again. I need to nip this in the bud and do some proactive care. So some people had kind of been on their way. Some people had probably had a struggle with this eating for a long time, but COVID just you know, kind of exacerbated it and made it flare up. And so they realized, oh, I need help now. And since Rock was able to put all, all of our programs virtual within a matter of days, we were able to keep serving people, which was awesome. And then some people I think, who already were seeking care just needed more support, you know, and with job changes and the cost, a lot of people lost access to either their insurance or their income. And so there was more of a need to for the sliding scale services that we offer. So yeah, it was a very busy first six weeks. And we continue to see a pretty big increase. I think right now we're at about an average of a 400% increase. Wow. Compared to this time last That's year, That's crazy. It's been busy. And we're starting new programs and growing to try to combat that because the need is just great. And we're honestly amazed at how well virtual programs work. I never thought virtual, individual therapy, I was like, yeah, sure. Great. But group therapy and group support has been amazing virtually. And it's been really cool to see people still connect and get the care that they need, even even during these really strange, you know, unprecedented, dare I say, times. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, I think, um, yeah, I don't love, personally love the idea, like I prefer in-person, like group type of stuff as well. Um, but I think it's really just a matter of committing to it. And then once you're getting into conversation with people, it really does sort of feel like you're kind of in the same room a little bit. <laughs> so um, now I, I was wondering if you had, I didn't prep you for this, so if nothing comes to mind, But I, you know, do you have any particular success stories that you could share about a particular person that's gone through the program that you really feel like has has been thriving since? I mean, gosh, we have over a 100 of those stories, which is so cool. So
2: one of mine that comes to mind was a client we actually served a couple of years ago who had moved here on like a Saturday. And happened to go to a church on a Sunday where we were actually advertising the new ID course Because at the time we were doing all those courses in person with churches. And um, this is actually a man, one of our male clients. We've served a vast majority of women, but this is one of my favorite clients because I'm not a therapist. I can have favorites, I like to say. <laughs> and, um, and he moved here on a Saturday, came to church on a Sunday, saw our new ID program. And he's like, I'm sure I don't have an eating disorder, but let me come to this course and learn a little bit more came to the course, realized that he had bulimia and had been getting pretty bad. And he was really, really struggling at the time. I mean, binging and purging multiple times a week, it started to really decline. At the time, we had a waiting list because at the time we only had one program operating. We're now up to six programs operating. So we're trying to build capacity. But we had a waiting list and he really declined while he waited on that waiting list and then joined our program maybe three months after he started the wait list and after he joined our meal support and therapy group, he said he never binged and purged again. And, wow. you know, we're like, results may vary. This is not a normal <laughs> story in a lot right. of ways. Like, we're not saying you come to us and you're healed after one group or after X amount of months. It's not how it yeah. works, unfortunately. But I think for him, he just was like, it was breaking the isolation that changed everything for him. And getting that support, getting the clinical care and the peer support, even though it was him and a bunch of ladies, you know, like it really just helped and helps hold him accountable and helps to heal him. And I mean, we email from time to time and he's just been so lovely and supportive to say like, there's not a day that goes by that. I don't think of the good work you guys did with me. He's like, and it's changed my life forever. And I will just weep. If I think about like, there's so many clients that come back to us and just say like, that wasn't just you helped me while I was with you. Like you've changed my whole life. We have people who are moms now who thought they couldn't get pregnant or who, you know, were told they couldn't have kids or, people who go back to school and change their careers because they realize they want to do something different with their lives. And it's just amazing to see people freed up to live the full lives that they were called to live, not just stuck, you know, somewhere in this halfway in
1: between. Well, and I assume that most of your clients are younger, um, like in their 20s or so. But do you ever get people that are older? Like, I'm just thinking if someone is watching this, and they're thinking, I'm 35. And like, this sounds like Maybe I actually have been dealing with an eating disorder all this time. Like, do you talk with people that are older ever? Yes. I mean, the majority of our clients honestly are in their 30s. Okay. And we have people
2: well into their 60s come to us. When we ran New Idea to Church here in Northern Virginia, we had 40 women sign up and we did it through the women's group. So it was just women for that course. And I want to say over half of them were above the age of 50. And a lot How? of them struggled. Yeah, I know. Oh, uh-huh. I breaks mean, <laughs> my heart. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And a lot of them had either struggled for years and never sought help, or they had kind of had it earlier in life got better. But then life transitions, empty nesting, you know, different things that had changed. Suddenly, the stuff kind of started cropping back up for them. And they're like, this is weird. Like, why am I suddenly doing these things again? But change and trauma and triggers, all these things make life hard again, right? And can bring back old behavior sometimes if we need more healing and need to do a bit more work on them. So um, yeah, we have people, we serve people 18 and up right now. We're trying to start a new teen program to help serve adolescents because we know it's a huge need. But there are a lot of underserved adults out there. And that's why I love a lot of the programs that we do is it reaches people who might not realize they need help. And I mean, I'm so biased, because that's what happened for me, you know, I didn't realize I needed help. And I feel like someone kind of came and plucked me out of the pit and like set my feet on the rock, right? That's why we love the name mm-hmm. Rock Recovery, because yeah. I really just feel like, that's what happened for me. And we want to go help, you know, people need to do the work and be accountable, but we want to help place them on a rock and show them a, a more solid way to stand. And it's great to get to reach people, whether they know they need help or not. And then you just do it a day at a time.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting that you and this client that you mentioned, you're both like, well, I don't really think I have this, but like, I'll check it out. You know, it's like, follow that lead in your mind of like, let's look into this. Maybe life can be better than you think it can be. Um Absolutely. You know, I guess sort of close, getting to the end of the questions here, but um, you know thinking about these teenagers, like these teenage, I, I know it's boys too, but we know that most of it is girls. and like what it, what do you suggest for a mom who thinks like maybe this is happening? Like I'm not sure, but like what if it is? and like what should someone do in that case if they feel like their child is maybe on the verge or is struggling with an eating disorder?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And in, in some ways, it the, the answer is the same, whether it's a friend or a child or whoever it is. It's You know, we talk about taking this person first approach where if someone is struggling with an eating disorder or any kind of disordered eating, I talk about it being like it's kind of like their binky, you know, like we're often holding on to our security blanket. And when you're a kid and someone tries to take away your binky, like, it is not okay, right? Like, you will throw grow a fit. One time I cried so hard I threw up and my mom took my bunny and put it in the washer because <laughs> I was, like, real pissed about it. So anyway, like, you know, you know part, when, someone, when someone takes away your security blanket, like, you fight, you get defensive. So the first thing is to really anticipate resistance. Like, most of the time mm-hmm. you're going to get resistance and combativeness and, like, I'm fine. Like, other people do, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. Like, whatever. And um, so really taking this person first approach of like, hey, like, I've just noticed some things like I've noticed you don't really join us for family dinner. I've noticed that you're not snacking like you used to like I have noticed you're going on really long runs a lot. And I'm just kind of concerned that maybe I see you coping with life and coping with stressors and some unhealthy ways. And I just want to help or, you know, I know life is really hard. There's a lot of change happening. So we talk about person first approach, validating, you know, validating what's going on. If there is a certain circumstance that might be kind of exacerbating or triggering this for somebody or even just social media or peer pressure or whatever it is, kind of validating and then just being like, listen, I love you. I'm here for you. I care for you. And I just want to see you like be well and whole. And I wonder if we could go talk to somebody about that. You know, I really think bringing experts in can be helpful because we all have blind spots And it's really good to bring in some people who can kind of help us see what we can't see. Um, But expecting resistance and kind of knowing. And if you're a parent and it's a child situation, like you do have a bit more control over what they do and taking them to assessments. But again, getting people to want recovery for themselves is really a critical part of the process. It looks really differently. It can take different amounts of times. We've seen people forced into treatment who do get better, right? So it, but it just you have to want, you have to be willing to let go a little bit and to, and to want to do the work and it can change. I mean, we've had clients that rock come to us on their ninth or 10th time at recovery, you know, and finally make progress. So it's never too late either, even if it's been multiple times and you feel like, Oh, there's no hope for me or nothing's going to work. Like sometimes it is that ninth time. And I don't know why it's the ninth and not the second or the first, but that's okay. If it takes a couple of times
1: man, I'm just having flashbacks as you're talking. Like, cause I just remember, um, you know, for me, I I remember I would go to, I was going to the dermatologist at the age of 14 or something. And I remember the dermatologist calling my mom and saying, I need to talk to your mom by by herself. And like, I'm like, what is happening? And then my mom told me later, she's like, Oh, she's worried that you have an eating disorder. Like, like, you know, so I think, um, you know, just, I don't know, all that to say, just like, like doctors, parents, like everybody, I sort of be on the lookout, I guess, or be sensitive to those issues um, at that age, because it is such a sensitive, and and then when I remember hearing like people saying like, okay, I didn't really get one until I was like in college. I'm like, how did it take you so long? Like, you know, I was basically 12 years old, you know, when this hit me. Um, So it can't, and, and, and it really did, and not to digress in the conversation, but it really did just sort of come almost in a split second for me. And that's yeah. that's what really scares me, you know, for my daughter um, because I just remember the moment that things shifted but it was so many other things leading up to it, you know, that got me to that place. But, but I don't want to end on a sad note um, no. because the happy note is that I am completely recovered and you're completely recovered. And so I guess my last question for you is, you know looking back at that time in your life when you felt like you were in that prison of an eating disorder and looking at your life now like maybe what something w- would you say to yourself and and what does it feel like now to live in freedom
2: mm-hmm. I mean, looking back, gosh, what I would say to myself I mean, <laughs> oh there's so many things outside myself really I think just to, I'd be like, you're okay like you're okay it's okay you know to it's okay that life is hard it's okay that these things have happened to you it's okay that you feel uncomfortable in your body. It's okay that life is scary. Like it's okay. And you can, and you can do this. Like you can do the next right thing and kind of, and make it through. And I feel like the biggest thing for me is I conform to the patterns of this world, right? I mean, I felt like to be loved and accepted, I'm a big words of affirmation person and to be loved and accepted. I was like, well, I have to look this certain way. Cause when I lose weight, I get affirmed. When I lose weight, I'm told I'm good enough. I'm told I'm acceptable. I'm told I'm right. And I think I would have just been like, "This is this is not true." Like you're, these these words of affirmation are not truly affirming you. Just because people are affirming you doesn't mean that it's actually right or rooted in what is good and true. So just seek what is good and true, not what is temporal or fleeting or popular mm-hmm. or whatever the thing is. You know, just finding things that are good and true and being okay that things are hard too. I really struggled with feelings and coping with you know all the uncertainties and all the hard things in life but so i think it's having grace for that and and seeking what's good and true and not believing the lies which are so easy to let seep in that we see i mean with ourselves with our children with whoever
1: um and what's the second question sorry um (laughs) just what does it feel like to be free Uh, like that's so great.
2: Um, I mean, life is still hard. Don't get me wrong. You can read my journal if you want and see that life is <laughs> hard. But it just feels like, I mean, joy and freedom. I really, the, the joy that I get in breaking bread with people that I love is amazing. I mean, I really do think this community is is why we're here in a lot of ways. Like we're meant to live life in community while we're here. And it's just amazing to be able to connect over food and to not have to think about it and to eat intuitively, you know, the idea and approach that rock takes and I take personally is all foods fit. And so to not feel like this food makes me a bad person if I eat it or I or, or there is this judgment around myself, like to be free of the negativity, to be free of the judgment, the shoulds, the shouldn'ts, and just to be able to listen to my body as God created it and not with any other external cues or pressures is amazing. and it's really freeing. And I will say body image was definitely the last thing to heal for me in my journey after a couple of years of kind of seeking treatment in my early 20s. And I'm almost 37. You know, my body has changed. i have not even had children yet. But my body has changed significantly. And that's challenging in its own way. But I'm able to like see the changes and not be attached to it and not care and to just kind of process it and to still feel really comfortable and confident in my body. I always thought that I would feel okay when I was X size or X pounds and I've realized X size, X pounds has nothing to do with me being okay or me being loved or me being accepted. It is completely detached from any of that. And it's been so freeing to realize my worth, my value, my love is not attached to my looks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just, one of the things I I remember always just like staring at these um, magazines and models and just looking at and thinking like if I could just like look like that in a bikini and, and it sounds so shallow to say it but but I remember thinking that and and I thought the other day I was like man I could care less about looking good in a bikini like I do not care I don't even have a bikini I don't want a bikini um but I would wear one I don't care um so so I agree with you um on all of those fronts in terms of freedom and just you know looking back and, and almost not even recognizing the person that I was. Um, so um, I know that you along with me wanna want people to know that they can find that place, um, whether it's an eating disorder, even if it's something else, if it's alcohol, or if it's drugs, like um, there is hope and there is um, a different life on the other side. So um, if people are interested in rock recovery, how can they tell us about it? Tell us yeah. how they can get involved.
2: Well, the good old internet, find us on our website, which is just rockrecoveryed.org. And we have our events, which are all virtual for now. So you can take part, no matter where you are. We have our events, our workshops, our clinical programs all on there. Follow us on social media. I think we're rockrecoveryed on Facebook and just rockrecovery on Instagram and Twitter. Um, And then we have all kinds of great forms on our website. We just love to help anybody get referrals or get the treatment that they need and I'd love to keep in touch
1: because it really, freedom really is possible and it's really yeah. worth it. So, yeah. All right, Christy. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. We went a whole 50 minutes, um, oh my but I think it, I know it doesn't really feel like it was that long. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm so glad that we were able to chat. And um, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This has been a joy.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan. Discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.